This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. Michael Casey? Yeah, I feel yeah. like Michael Casey might be like a good way into some of like the wrinkly because he's a, like a sketchy sort of figure who was kind of uh, involved with Gary Caradori and kind of insinuated himself into the investigation. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to sort of see, yeah, and I think this might be a good way into Benacci and some of the, uh, or Benassi and some of the uh i think i think it ought MK to uh, as a side note yeah. i think it like it should be pronounced benacci but he pronounces it benassi benassi okay so he pronounces I, it benassi i, I, I think guess we'll so. do that all right yeah, yeah. um yeah <laughs> anyway so yeah uh michael casey was like a very interesting uh part of this um, and he was someone who was held up by, uh, you know, the grand jury and the prosecutors as, like, basically uh, a big part in the genesis of this hoax, along with uh, Kirsten uh, Hillbrand, who kind of, like, you know, they said, like, oh, you know, she manipulated these people to say uh, these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he, like, you know, uh, as soon as, like, the credit union stuff started to come out, he kind of got involved in this, uh, Michael Casey, um, in sort of uh, the role of being like an investigative, uh, you know, uh, journalist. Uh, and it's uh, he is, there's very sort of weird thing around him. So I'll just read this from Brian. Um, so Car- Caridori's earliest forays into Franklin resulted in his treading metaphorical avenues and alleyways that were fruitful, fallow, or downright bizarre. And his interactions with Michael Casey would encompass all three. In the role of a, quote, freelance journalist, Casey had been delving into Franklin for months, scouring Omaha's seedy underside, accruing contacts and tantalizing tidbits. In fact, he co-authored that early, relatively superficial article about Franklin and the Village Voice in February 1989. Casey had a talent for Blarney and drinking vast quantities of liquor, two talents that often accompany and complement each other. Uh, not really a super big fan of, like, uh, Bryant's flourishes uh, in his writing, but okay, whatever. Yeah. In a testament to Casey's gift of Blarney, he reportedly convinced the Los Angeles Times that he had the Underwood connections to locate then-fugitive Patty Hearst, and the paper bankrolled his ill-fated hijinks. Uh, uh, basically extremely he said sus. It was extremely sus, and he said, like, you know, she was in Hong Kong or whatever, and, like, uh, yeah, I actually read a little bit about they 
sent I to see, reporters yeah, there the, to, like, uh, verify his, uh, you know, connection with her. And they, like, gave her, like, they gave the reporter some information from Patty Hearst's cousin, uh, like, you know, that only she would know. And then they were in the room uh, with him, and they wanted to prove that, he, you know, he, they, he, of course, wouldn't take them to meet her because he wasn't actually in contact with her. And uh, he, like, you know, talked to someone on the phone, and he, like, you know, wrote down something. And those, and he's like, here you go. And those were the answers to the questions. So they're like, oh, wow, he really got it with her. But what he actually did was he called up the cousin who they had spoken to and mm. said like, oh, hey, like I'm that, I'm an LA Times reporter. I just wanted to check again. Like what were the answers to those questions that, <laughs> uh, you know? Uh, wow. And he was like, and so on the other, on the other point, he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm, yeah, just one, one more time. And they're like, yeah, uh, wow. You know, but anyway, so uh, it was like a huge dead end for them. Mm. Anyway, so he also had a talent for absconding. This is Brian again. With the money of concerned Nebraska citizens and compelling them to give him shelter. He even talked the Nebraska State Police into footing the bill for a motel where he freely availed himself of movie rentals. According to the NSP, Casey had a long rap sheet, which included forgery, credit card fraud, and alcohol-related driving infractions resulting in various convictions and incarcerations. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like, they were, like, paying for... The Nebraska State Police were paying for him to, like, live in this motel, and they, you know, he had all... Anyway, so... Caridori first became aware of Casey from one of Jerry Lowe's reports, and he found Casey crashing at the home of an Omaha talk radio personality. Caridori and Ormiston visited the latter's home and talked to both Casey and his host. Casey's Franklin materials were displayed throughout the living room. The radio personality would become disillusioned with Casey after a month or so and give him the boot. After Casey's departure, an employee of the phone company visited the radio personality's home and told him that his home phones had been tapped too. Because of wow. Casey's ability to spin convincing a contradictory yarns, his sketchy history is a complex tapestry of truth and falsehoods, and perhaps grand intentions and destructive actions. In 1974, after a stint in prison, Casey Brufy served as Boys Town's special product director. But no. according to the World Herald, wow. yeah, he was fired for taking the confidential case histories of residents and sending the files to MGM in an effort to sell a television series based on the orphanage. Though Casey claimed that Boys Towns had given permission to take the files, Father Hupp emphatically rejected that per, uh, permission was ever granted. Um, he emphatically said that permission was never granted. Uh, Hupp said Casey picketed the main gate at Boys Town pr- to protest his termination. Given Casey's dodgy history, Carrie Dory's cultivation of him as a source may seem questionable, but Casey allegedly had information to offer. Casey initially told Carrie Dory to had access to a videotape showing Larry King engaged in sexual acts with children. And it also connected an audio tape interview with a bo- former Boys Town student who discussed being molested by Peter Citron, an Omaha World Herald columnist, and one of the prominent Nebraskans whom Caridori's early sources had tied to King's pandering network. Caridori concluded that the video- videotape never existed, but he quickly acquired the audio tape of the Boys Town student. Um, wow. So, yes. So this, anyway, is the, but, this, this is that Boys Town, this, the disgruntled Boys Town employee that was mentioned as, uh, you know, the person who right. maybe crafted this hoax, but was also right, right. posing as a journalist um, who's going to expose and rather um, enthusiastically inserted himself into Alicia Owen's life, right? Right, yes. Um, and he was definitely used to smear her and say like, you know, he kind of convinced her that there's going to be this movie deal coming out of this or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah. He made a lot of like big, big talk promises. I think did, did he interact with Troy Bonner as well? Um, I'm not sure if he interacted, uh, with Troy Bonner. Um, it's, uh, possible. Um, but I'm not sure 
Casey phoned Owen's parents at her home following second hospitalization. Did he know uh, Boner? I don't know if he did. Yeah, um, but regardless, his his activities around Alicia Owen almost trying to bait her into yeah, for sure. You know, uh, the talking about. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that the house he was staying at was bugged so that if he was calling up Alicia Owen all the time, mm-hmm. he could just record every kind of conversation he had with any of these uh, victims. And uh, and then, yeah, he kind of just, like, I don't know where he went at. He just sort of, like, vanished into thin air after that. Yeah. And uh, right, yeah. Very strange. Um, oh, I guess, like, um, Casey, uh, Casey initially met Owen at St. Joseph's. The Franklin Credit Union had been raided and sorted into St. Joseph's services. Casey had taken a budding interest in the Franklin scandal and questioned Owen because of her evident familiarity with Omaha's gay community. Owen told uh, me, Brian, that her brief stay with Casey was the first and only time they ever discussed Franklin, emphasizing that she never revealed her involvement to him. However, uh, she felt grateful to Casey for providing her with shelter and tossed out two names, Troy Bonner and Danny King, saying they were enmeshed in Franklin. Owen felt confident that Casey would never find Bonner or King, and she was right. Casey never made contact with either one. So, oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, he didn't. Um, but yeah, yes, one of these people that starts to kind of like throw uh, throw some wrenches in the gears, and I guess maybe, maybe we should move to talking about like one of the most prominent uh, witnesses, one of these four, uh, and one of the two who never recanted their testimony. Uh, yes, and um, but was not, but was not hit with the legal ton of bricks that yes. Alicia Owen, and that is Paul Benassi. Yes, so, and I, yeah, I have similar, like again, Paul Benassi. I think something definitely happened to him. Like you know, he's a victim, like of something, you know, and he might even be a victim of. Because I think one of the interesting things here is, like, the MK connection that starts to come out when we talk about Paul Bonacci. Because that's one yes. thing that sets him apart. So, just to talk about how he came... He was also someone who uh, Gary Caridori got in contact with. Because even though when, like, they were... The official sort of uh, side was uh, spinning this, Michael Casey was, like, the big figure in the investigation who originated everything. But really, of course, Gary Caridori, whose uh, plane mysteriously broke up magically in the air for no reason... Actually, uh, during the break we just took, I looked up uh, a little bit uh, about Gary Caridori's plane. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I guess there's, like, um, they had a little, like, uh, very short explanation uh, about uh, what happened to uh, the plane. Um, And, uh, yeah, like, there's there's different uh, sort of reports, like... uh, Apparently, there was no inclement weather or uh, rain or fog at all. Um, yeah, the, the like, forensics uh, of that crash were like the, the, the crash report, I think, was never released. Um, the, the wreckage was strewn over like several square miles, which indicate that it broke up mid-flight instead of having a problem in crashing. And, yes. um, and FBI agents, I think, showed up on the scene rather quickly to scoop up all the evidence because he had his briefcase full of files and potentially other stuff with him on that plane. Yes. And basically his briefcase yeah, had just was never... like made a call saying like, I got them by their short hairs yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Which, which um, feels almost like, like out of a movie, like, no, don't, don't say yeah. anything on the phone, man. But you know what? Like, I mean, I think uh, Gary Caridori definitely comes out as, like, kind of a hero and a martyr in this whole story. And yes. his, his wife and, like, his family all 100% believe that he was murdered. And yeah, probably they, they probably planted a bomb on his plane and then detonated it. 
or you know, yeah. it was on a timer um, or something. But uh, yeah, there was like um, a freedom of information request uh, around it, of course. And uh, they, what they, uh, this whole like, you know, there's this whole long process to try to get this uh, FOIA thing through. And what they came up with from the NTSB, uh, the uh, National Transportation Safety Bureau, mm-hmm. um, yeah. they got like literally this. Continued flight into area of thunderstorms. Lost control. Broke up. FSS pr- failed to advise of impending thunderstorms. Uh, <laughs> very fucking chilling. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, I wonder why they... Uh, I mean, according to, like, you know, the weather... National Weather Service, like, there were no thunderstorms, but uh, even still, like, interesting that the uh, FSS just failed to uh, say, like, oh, hey, there's a thunderstorm. Uh, and that he just randomly flew into it but anyway yeah uh, yeah it, he also does um yeah he he mentioned uh, decamp mentions that uh in june june uh 23rd 1990 caridori took a few hours off to uh to attend a barbecue at the home of mary lines barrett and <clears throat> these were a lot of the parents from the concerned parents group which i think was featured on the Geraldo special and um mm-hmm. basically uh arriving in a 1980 white corvette Caridori told concerned parents president Trish Lamphere that he had taken the car out of storage for the day's drive because his other vehicles had been tampered with, and he was, quote, sure that no one had ever seen that car. He was planning to sell his boat for the same reason, but what he most feared, he told Lamphere, was that someone would tamper with the private plane he often flew. Quote, it would be so easy to tamper with a plane. And I guess, yeah, then in early June uh, 1990, Caridori phoned Senator Schmidt, quote, we've got them, he explained about some new evidence he had just developed. There's no way they can get out of it now. He and his son, (laughs) Andrew, AJ, would be flying to Chicago for the All-Star Game the weekend of July 7th and 8th, he told Schmidt. Caridori was going to do a little investigating on the side and would review the new evidence with the senator upon his return the following Wednesday. On that Wednesday morning, July 11th, 1990, Senator Schmidt was in his office talking with a journalist about the Franklin investigation. He related the numerous threats received by himself and Caridori and Caridori's evaluation of those threats. Quote, it's unlikely that they would kill you or me, Lauren, because that would be too obvious, Gary had said once. But then again, you never know. At about 10.30 a.m., Senator Schmidt took a phone call. He listened for a moment, appeared shaken, and said, Oh, my God, no. After asking a few questions, he hung up, tears in his eyes. Gary's dead. Yeah. Um, A farmer in Lee County, this happened at 2.30 a.m. on July 11th. They were flying back in the middle of the night. A farmer in Lee County. Yeah. A farmer saw a flash of light, heard an explosion, and saw a plane plunge to the ground. Um, and they were, yeah, the, the carriers were killed. The plane's wreckage scattered over three quarters of a mile. And um, the eyewitness account of a flash of light and explosion was on the early edition of television news in Nebraska, but got pulled from subsequent reports, which said that the plane exploded on impact. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, but anyway, uh, I mentioned that because he was definitely like, yeah, uh, as you said, like kind of the hero of the story in a way, and the, definitely the, you know, uh, like, the main investigator of this, uh, who, you know, definitely was, yeah, he was the hero of the story because he was the one who was trying to, like, you know, uh, fight on behalf of the victims and was really doing the investigating where, like, Michael Casey was just, like, drunk and being a grifter, 
Um, but you know, in the official account, it kind of came off like Michael Casey sort of like, you know, uh, stirred up the whole thing. Uh, but and kind of minimize Cara Dory. I think role, they, they stopped course, short you know? of implying that Cara Dory was in on crafting the hoax, but rather that these yeah, kids like he was like a delusional idiot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was called a delusional investigator, I think, in, in GQ, uh, doing some hard hitting reporting. But anyway, uh, so uh, Cara Dory was again doing the main investigation, and uh, this is what you know, and that uh, so at this point, uh, just to sort of uh, give a picture of where he was in, in 1990 in February. Um, so the, Fe- the FBI started making forays to York in, uh, early February, 1990. York's visitor register shows that the FBI descended upon Owen for 10 interviews in February, but surprisingly, Owen wouldn't give an inch, even though she was confined to segregation and isolated. She was put in solitary confinement for no reason, Jesus. just, you know, to, to torture her. Though Owen refused to recant her videotaped statement, the forces against Caridori and the Franklin Committee must have been rather pleased the Douglas County Grand Jury began its deliberations. The leaks, abetted by the media, had effectively accomplished a meticulous hatchet job on Caridori's investigation and the victims he videotaped. And the FBI had coerced uh, Tony Boner, uh, Tony Boner, and Danny King into recanting their accounts of the Franklin Pandering Network. Moreover, the leaked videotapes of the victims, which were now ubiquitous on Omaha's airwaves, coupled with intimidation, had terrified additional victims from stepping forward. And the U.S. Department of Justice had ensured that Larry King was safely tucked away in a federal psychiatric facility. Mm. Um, It's so funny, like, you know, that, okay. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, Caridori realized he had stepped into the ring with the feds. Um, albeit a corrupt subgenus of the federal government, eh, but his innate moral mm. barometer wouldn't permit him to throw in the towel. Uh, some of these flourishes here, like a lot. Anyway, but yeah, uh, yeah. so he had a whole leads list of uh, 271 people who may have been victims, perpetrators, or witnesses of child abuse. But he managed to get a videotape of one person uh, in May, uh, and that was uh, Paul Bonassi. Um, okay. whose name he gleaned from a member of, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the group you mentioned just uh, before, Concerned Parents. Yes. Um, so, and at the time, uh, the 22-year-old Benassi was incarcerated at the Lincoln Correctional Center. Um, he, in November, within weeks of Franklin's fall, he had been charged with two counts of sexual assault on a child. His victims were two boys, 13 and 9 years old. Um, so... Uh, yeah. Anyway, so he's he, in jail. This is several months before Gary Caridori is probably murdered. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So this like and Paul Benassi became like a you know, he's a big part of the conspiracy of silence documentary. He yes. later became like a very prominent figure in the sort of conspiracies around the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. Yes. He sort of involved himself in that. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of sort of debate around uh, his motives and stuff involving that. So, I, I, yeah, I would say you know, like just, uh, yeah, uh, just to, to, to like contextualize it, I would say almost like the, the crowd of people that are up on the Johnny Gosh case, um, or the various, you know, podcasts, true crime things, the, the where's Johnny documentary from Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. it's almost like actually that one's a little bit kind of mm, on the fence about Benassi, but I, I noticed there's been more recent ones that even go into the whole Franklin connection, but then come down very hard against Benassi and basically yeah. say he was making it all up. It, it's not credible. But then on the Franklin side, I feel like people are much more, um, willing to take Benassi seriously, uh, yes. based on, but, but there's still, there, there's some interesting, um, kind of questions with, um, his testimony and, um, well, I think an interesting element that he introduces 
Yes. Uh, well, not only uh, is... Well, for one, he also, like um, Moore uh, slash uh, Loretta Smith, Shana Moore slash Loretta Smith, uh, mm-hmm. according to the camp pseudonym, um, he also described, like, witnessing a murder. Um, like a, a very like sort of ritualistic and bizarre murder. Um, well, really and, multiple uh, murders as well. Like the, there is yeah. the Bohemian Grove one, um, which is the, oh, fir- right. Yeah. Which is, I think, yeah. One of the first, uh, no, I, I, that, that, that's the thing, um, is I'm not sure if John DeCamp specifies like when exactly he was told about the Bohemian Grove story, but basically like the, the thing that Paul Benassi in, uh, he's not the first, as we see, like the Loretta Smith, uh, you know, uh, victim is the first one to bring up like satanic worship. And then other kids did as well. And, um, and people connected with like her cluster of victims who were the first to speak out as early as like 19, 86 through 88 like they alleged you know the connection of boys town and everything but paul benassi was the first one to bring in project monarch Mm -hmm. um into the equation and also kind of yeah well did he bigger things use the term monarch uh or did he just say that he had been uh a victim of mind control i mean he allegedly did have mpd but again like it was understood yes. like you know it wasn't considered a did at the time it was mpd uh it's a whole uh you know thing like and again like you know just to something that i i find like uh problematic about paul benassi in addition to some of the other aspects is like you know his being like a convicted child molester like you know go- going by cotton mather's uh standards uh or you know the puritan uh theologian standards you know uh you can't listen you know you can't convict a witch based on the testimony of another witch uh mm. you know that's uh, well yeah it gets yeah. a little dicey because uh john yes. DeCamp contextualizes that as basically one of his alters one of his sort of predatory uh, pedophile alters that he had, you know, supposedly been programmed with sort of uh, got triggered while he was babysitting these boys. And then he sort of um, like, you know, groped them momentarily and then snapped out of it and then like realized what he was doing and and felt really bad. Um, But he was still at that time, he was bouncing around between different, Alters. I mean, that I've seen inherently to me begs the question of like if he's truly programmed to the point where he's been like successfully programmed with these alters, like you know, is he a like trustworthy person to look to as like you know? Well, th- I think uh, that is the question yeah. about Paul Benassi because I think a lot of times, uh, the I don't know, um, I think that the debate around whether or not we should quote unquote trust Paul Benassi it's often drawn on the line of like, is he totally making all this up and actually didn't have a connection to this or had like a really, really tangential connection to it, but like made a bunch of extra stuff up or is he more or less telling the truth? And I would kind of draw the line maybe a little bit different uh, going on what you just said, where is somebody, if they were in fact, I, I just maybe entertaining this hypothesis that if somebody was in fact programmed uh, with these multiple personalities uh, through this kind of uh, systematized abuse. And, um, you know, uh, and some of those personalities were for the purposes of uh, disseminating, like, 
deception and disinformation or things of that nature um, or like twisting the truth, uh, then is it possible that when he was speaking as certain altars of his, that he, those altars were in some way being deceptive, um, which I think is different than, is like clinically different than somebody lying consciously, right? I think we could agree mm-hmm. for somebody with DID, with like, with it seemed all the the clinical people that um, the experts that kind of, um, you know, examined him during this period uh, definitely believed that he authentically had, you know, MPD or DID. Um, yes. So in a sense, um, and it, you know, but yeah, the is understanding the- of how it works has like sort of evolved. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely like a hazy like area. I mean, it's definitely not the same as like maliciously lying per se, but it is interesting that it was at a point where like the FBI was cracking down on him and he came into the picture. Like, yeah, you know, uh, I think like, you know, maybe he does have some altars that are like truly innocent, you know. Uh, there's actually... In terms of Paul Bonassi, I mean, I think it might be uh, good to just sort of recount his uh, Jeremy story, which was the one that sort of involved um, Hunter uh, S. Thompson. Um, yeah, yeah. Or the, the figure known as, as Hunter uh, S. Thompson. Um, yeah, um, I, I have the the um, his report um, that he wrote to John yeah. DeCamp. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said... Because uh, this uh, is... I, I don't even know if I, similar, I, I don't even yeah. need to read like the entire, uh, the, the, yeah. the paragraph of like exactly what's happening, but maybe we'll just like, uh, set it up. Like he says, I, I went in January of 84 on every trip. I was paid by men. King knew for sex in the summer of 84. Sometime I went to Dallas, Texas and had sex with several men. King knew in a hotel. I flew on YNR airlines and cam airlines normally for King. I never had much personally to do with King only went where he told me to go. In or on July 26th, I went to Sacramento, California. King flew me out on a private plane from Epley Airfield in Omaha to Denver, where we picked up Nicholas, a boy who was about 12 or 13. Then we flew to Las Vegas to a desert strip and drove into Las Vegas and to some ranch and got something. Then we flew into Sacramento. We were picked up by a white limo and taken to a hotel. I don't remember the name of it. We, meaning Nicholas and I, were driven to an area that had big trees. It took about an hour to get there. There was a cage with a boy in it who was not wearing anything. Nicholas and I were given these Tarzan things to put around us and stuff. Um, and uh, then they described being forced to, uh, to like, start having sex with the boy. And they resisted and they uh, threatened them with guns. And uh, then basically, yeah, I'm just going to paraphrase this because the way he describes it is so clinically, like, it's so, like, unvarnished and sort of fucked up. Um, but they were forced to like abuse this boy and they, the, the adults filmed it. And then, um, then yeah, they kept doing that. And, uh, and then eventually they shot the boy in the head right next to Paul Benassi. Um, and, uh, then, force them to keep yes. doing stuff like it, it, it's really like this is some really yeah. uh twisted um, twisted stuff and then um so this is actually wait is he saying uh, well he said he went to sacramento 
We've always said that um, this is what he alleged it happened at Bohemian Grove, but um, let me see. Um, well, I think that maybe uh, that was like misremembered because, or like that was us misremembering that, uh, or, you know, in the same way that we would say that Hunter S. Thompson ate a baby, but really he didn't eat the baby uh, or, you know. Uh, like that act is involved in this, film. but it, yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't Hunter S. Thompson. They're saying like they did all these yeah. terrible things and then they filmed it all. And then um, at the end of it, like uh, in other testimony, DeCamp writes, Benassi said that Larry King was smiling and laughing. Oh, yeah, they took... Um, yeah, okay, so they were they were cleaned up after all this stuff happened and put on clothes and driven to a house where the men were with some others. They had the film and they played it as uh, of the killing of this kid. And as the men watched, they passed Nicholas and I around as if we were toys and sexually abused us. He says, <clears throat> I was there for about five days attending parties, but only recall cutting my wrist, which is why I stayed two days in a hospital under a name I can't recall. Some guy paid for me. In other testimony, Benassi said that Larry King was smiling and laughing the whole time the film was being shown and that, quote, the men with the hoods were a satanic group which planned to use the dead boy in some sort of ceremony. He also mm-hmm. named the director of the snuff film whom they had picked up in Las Vegas as quote Hunter Thompson. Yes. Um, so yeah, that, uh, um, but yes, I, I don't think um, it's weird that Bohemian Grove, I feel like that worked its way into the narrative. Um, well, I at did some point. Uh, watch. Okay. So I think that the reason why we associated with Bohemian Grove in the past is because I actually listened to the tape of this, which is on YouTube and the, picture that they use is the owl from bohemian grove so i think that before like you know when we've talked about this is happening at bohemian grove in the past i think that we like at some point like you know because we well actually wait um i i i uh i apologize in the chapter drugs in the monarch project actually decamp does say that in one d this is in his like uh, supplement to the original franklin cover-up book he says uh in one instance detailed in the franklin cover-up paul was taken by larry king and others to a wooded area in california identified after publication as bohemian grove so he didn't I guess the, he didn't, Paul Benassi didn't know where he was at the time that he originally said these things to DeCamp, but then they later tracked it down. And it says oh, there, I Paul see, and yeah. another boy were first to do sex acts and to consume parts of a child whom they had watched being murdered by the cultists. The body was to be disposed of by, quote, the men with the hoods. A snuff pornography film was made of these events. It was directed by a man the party had picked up in Las Vegas, whom Paul identified as Hunter Thompson. The same name as a well-known sleaze culture figure. <laughs> Sorry, is, uh, um, but yeah, the, the is Sacramento the, near uh, the it's, Bohemian Grove. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, it, it's it's yeah, basically right. um, it, it would sense. be it would be closer maybe. Well, that's the thing. I think if you're going a little more like out of the way, it'd be um, it'd be more maybe more low key to fly into Sacramento and then like drive maybe an hour or two to where Bohemian Grove is. I see. Um, um, a little more low key than going to like San Francisco. <laughs> uh, I I just looked up Bohemian Grove on Google Maps and there's literally a land mark titled Moloch Owl God, uh, which is marked as a religious destination. Yeah. Um, pretty uh, funny. Anyway. And, um, anyways, um, oh, I just want to read, like, so the, the extension of this, and this is where DeCamp starts talking about Monarch, is he says that Paul has told investigators that the ring which plunged him into Satanism was centered at Offutt U.S. Air Force Base near Omaha, that he was taken to Offutt to be sexually victimized by a babysitter's boyfriend when he was about three years old, around 1970. Offutt is the headquarters for the Strategic Air Command, 
<clears throat> and has had a cadre of thousands of intelligence personnel. At Offit and later at other military installations, Paul says this ring, quote, trained him by tortures, heavy drugging, and sexual degradation while instructing him in military arts, including assassination. In fact, his personal knowledge in these realms can scarcely be accounted for other than by crediting the indictments he has made. Larry King, FBI agent Jerry Wall, Alan Baer, Harold Anderson, and former Omaha police chief Robert Wadman have all been reported as collaborators with the satanic military base ring. King reportedly told Paul's captors at Offit, quote, he's young, but you trained him good. Uh, And I guess a member of Nebraska's Concerned Parents Group reported hearing from two North Omaha witnesses that, quote, King used to send limousines down to Offit Air Force Base to pick up CIA agents for parties. And, uh, of course, Larry King did report his own adoring relationship with late CIA Director William Casey in a September 1988 interview in the Omaha publication Metropolitan. Um, So, you know, this gets to basically, yeah, psychiatrists who have treated a growing number of MPD cases, victims of satanic ritual abuse, report an alarming pattern of findings in many of their child patients. There is a structure to the personalities, conforming to what is evidently a deliberate breaking and reshaping of the mind. This phenomenon was identified to Paul Benassi by his tormentors and to other victims as witnesses as the Monarch Project at Offutt Air Force Base. Paul was told that what he and other children were being subjected to was an aid of national security. And yeah, oh, so like that's So maybe yeah, so I, I think, he, think that he says O'Brien came <clears throat> up with Monarch, but or was it maybe he said that after I don't know. Anyway, but yeah, and maybe he came up maybe he was the first person to introduce Monarch into the lexicon. Uh, yeah, um, more than Kathy O'Brien, but yeah, DeCamp yeah, uh, De, a little more here because this is this hits on a couple things mm-hmm. um, of the kind of ambiguity of this, but also reminds us of things maybe we've delved into before. It's a, a DeCamp writes that professionals probing the child victims of quote monarchs say there are two, clearly two responsible elements at work: the government slash military and cooperating satanic or more exactly pagan cults. These are multi generation groups where parents donate their own children, who are proudly called, quote, bloodline or simply blood cultists, to be smashed with drugs and electric shock and shaped. Other children are kidnapped and sold into this hell or are brought in gradually through daycare situations. Paul Benassi and other child victims have given evidence in great depth of the central role of Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino in this depravity. Aquino, alleged to have recently retired from an active military role, was long the leader of an Army psychological warfare section which drew on his expertise and personal practices in brainwashing, Satanism, Nazism, homosexual pedophilia, and murder. And this is a weird quote he throws in at the end. A former director of the CIA was asked directly, quote, what about Monarch? He replied angrily and ambiguously, quote, we stopped that between the late 60s and early 70s. If a statement of fact, this would presumably relate to official participation of the CIA. Now, I don't know what DeCamp is getting at here because he also interviews Colby and Colby gives a more in-depth answer. But why does he just say a former director of the CIA was asked directly, like which director and by whom was he asked? And like, what is the source yeah. of this? He, hmm. Very kind of. And that, that's what I've mentioned in last episodes where I thought that was William Colby's uh, answer to uh, whether or not there was, you know, a monarch program. But actually, Colby gives a much more in-depth um, answer in one of his like sit down conversations, um, which I will. Uh, let's see. Bring up here. Um 
Constructed Memorial Project. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the story told... Monarch refers to young people in America who are victims of mind control experiments run either by U.S. government agencies such as the CIA or military intelligence agencies. The story told by Monarch victims, one of whom is Paul Manassi, is that they were tortured for the purpose of creating multiple personalities within them. These multiple personalities could then be programmed as desired, as spies, drug mules, prostitutes, or assassins. Because of legal cases still pending, I'm severely limited in what I can say about the Monarch Project. Suffice it to say, at this point, major intelligence programs in this country did and do exist for the purpose of protection of this country and to learn what other countries, particularly our Cold War enemies, were doing in this area of mind control. So I asked Bill Colby to tell me what he could or would about this. And here we go. He said... Of course, the CIA in particular was involved in investigating, learning, and on occasion using everything we could learn about mind control, and with extremely good reason. Following the Korean War, this country's military and intelligence communities went through a period of absolute paranoia about just how far our enemies were ahead of us in mind control and related activities. There was no particular program called Monarch, contrary to what you want to think. Monarch was merely a name that some participants in the program, who knew very little about it other than from their own limited participation, were given to identify themselves. But as far as the CIA was concerned, there was no such program named Monarch. But Mm. with respect, so that's interesting, yeah, but but with respect to mind control, I will tell you that this country spent millions upon millions supposedly catching up to our Cold War adversaries because we believed they had developed mind control technology which exceeded anything we had. In fact, we at the company, the CIA, truly believed for a substantial period of time that technology and techniques and drugs had been developed by Russia, which would enable them to have agents who in fact really were able to have and use ESP, extrasensory Perception. You imagine, Bill continued, how dangerous for this country it would be if you could have someone meeting the President of the United States who was actually able to read what was in the President's mind? I know, Bill continued, it may sound silly today to get all carried away with this fear, but I can tell you... That's why Joe Biden is the ultimate weapon, anyway. I guess. (laughs) But I can tell you that we took it all very seriously and believed this ESP thing for some significant time period. I will tell you one other thing, Bill said, somewhat ominously... We are not behind in knowledge of mind control. In fact, we never were. But we only found that out much later, after we had poured incredible resources into this area. Yeah, of course. And and yes, I am sure there were some problems and abuses that occurred, and we will talk about them at another time. Um... Uh, and we will talk about them in this episode. Uh, uh, and we will talk about them at that time. And uh, but Bill Bill Colby will not because I think shortly after that he ended up uh, mysteriously drowning in the Chesapeake Bay uh, okay. after going out for a mysterious boat ride Smiley with his dinner face. half eaten and his computer still on. In the face of mysterious threats, John has turned for advice to his friend and one-time boss, former head of the CIA, Bill Colby. Uh, well, Bill Colby told me better than anything. The, the one thing that uh, the mad people can't afford is publicity, and, and knocking you off right now or doing something obvious to, to one of your kids uh, would bring him more trouble than it's worth. I said, you, you have to consider the possibility of some danger to not only your reputation, but to your person. I mean, there are... People do react rather violently to some kinds of charges, or particularly if they're true, there's more apt to be a negative reaction than if they're false. If they're false charges, then they can be reacted to in a normal way, a libel suit or whatever. But uh, a true, if there's truth in it, there can be 
a danger in that situation. We've seen that happen in other cases. We'll talk about Monarch a little more, but like, uh, yeah, John DeCamp's relationship with Bill Colby, very bizarre and like fascinating. And why Bill Colby um, agreed to put his name on the line to lend credence to the story or had an interest in it um, and then died under strange circumstances. Uh, but at the same time, like, uh, I don't know. I, I Bill Colby is, is kind of a cipher on this count. Mm-hmm. Like, what was this a per? Sometimes I want to think that this is this a personal thing with him and Bush because Bush replaced him as CIA director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And even though they had so much in common, and and Bill Colby is not exactly totally repentant about everything he did. I mean, you saw it there. It's like, well, I'm sure there were some abuses that were committed. It's very unfortunate, you know. Um, but he was kind of the original limited hangout guy. I mean, he's the one who, like, quote-unquote, exposed CIA's, like, you know, assassination programs to Congress in the 70s. But, like, he didn't really expose this. I mean, he certainly didn't expose this kind of stuff, this kind of um, the extent of MK Ultra. He said, you know, oh, it was like a failure. Yeah. Um, well, but anyways, like, I, I mean, that's the official, yeah, but I mean, and maybe that it really was like his, ad, but I don't know, I guess in saying like we're ahead in mind control, that's not really, uh, suggestive that it was a failure at all, but I find that uh, a very interesting thing yeah. to, to say in the 1990s that actually we are ahead in mind control. Uh, certainly like, uh, yeah. And it kind of confirms what we've talked about where like sort of the paranoia about like the brainwashing is really like, again, like kind of a form of projection, which yep. I think, and you could really tie that in with the whole thing. There's an interesting part where, uh, Rosenthal who kind of replaced Caradoria as representative of, uh, Owen was interrogating, uh, Michael Mott, the FBI agent who sort of wove this tale alleging that, uh, Alicia Owen had told him that she was like buying acid from the Sons of Silence. And, uh, you know, he was like, uh, do the or the Bloods in the Crips. And he was like, do the Bloods in the Crips usually sell LSD? Uh, you know, <laughs> like uh, they don't. Re- but yeah, so it's interesting that he would like, you know, be so adamant that, uh, you know, she was involved in this LSD thing. But uh, yeah, there's possibly another as motors but i i wanted to bring up uh, this uh little paragraph um from Brian's book he doesn't uh and also some of the other stuff that he talks uh about with uh, cuz he actually went and met with uh Benassi, uh you know uh, as he is uh into or as he was in 2009 or or, or a little a few years before that um mm-hmm. and he's kind of integrated his uh his personalities before that i did find this paragraph to be interesting about uh Loretta Smith slash Shanetta uh, Moore um, who, you know, her stories are similar in terms of their sort of, uh, horrific nature to, uh, Benassi. So in terms of mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, uh, the sort of, um, you know, similarities, uh, there, I think that their, their accounts are, uh, most, most aligned. And, uh, she, there's an interesting, uh, little, uh, anecdote here where, um, so Moore talked about being transported from the girls club at the age of nine to a studio and photographing the nude. She claimed four other girls accompanied her. Uh, Lowe, uh, Jerry Lowe, uh, mm-hmm. who was an investigator, um, asked her uh, for the committee, asked her if the African-American man she identified as Ray, who shuttled her to the parties and power meetings, delivered her to the studio where she had been photographed. At first, she indicated that Ray had not brought her to the studio, and then she said she couldn't remember. Lowe suggested the use of hypnosis to jog her memory. 
she started to cry, replying she didn't want to be hypnotized. Um, so, mm. like, I mean, maybe hypnosis is just, like, a scary prospect to, like, you know, someone who's, like, vulnerable, uh, you know, due to, like, the perception of hypnosis in the media and, and things like that, you know. Uh, yeah, but it's got but an ominous connotation Yeah, it's very ominous. It. He doesn't make the uh, connection directly, but it's interesting that uh, she would say that. But yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, well, the, the getting back to like ben, Benassi uh, real quick, um, like what uh, what is what a, if there what do you think the strongest case is um, like against kind of like his credibility? Because I, I don't find know the warm strange. I don't necessarily think that he's not credible per se, but I do think that. He was someone who's like used for one. I think that like his entanglement in the Johnny Gosh thing subsequently is strange. Uh, also, I find it odd, like the point at which he sort of came in and the way that, uh, you know, his allegations, um, you know, he really went heavily on certain aspects of it and uh, that they were kind of used to, uh, you know, I'm not sure if, uh, they would have had the same, like, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, they just crushed it brutally no matter what, but I just wonder, I think that also, like, I think actually is relevant to talk about Brian's interactions with Benassi, like, um, you know, in the sort of a a more recently, because Mm -hmm. I think that there's like, you know, I don't know, I got like a, a certain vibe while reading this. So, okay. You could just say that like, maybe he's being, uh you know maybe he's being monitored still or something but anyway so Mm -hmm. he writes uh anyway um uh yeah um my friend dirk was quite you know he is he was watching a conspiracy of silence so he says my friend dirk was quite intrigued by conspiracy of silence the documentary uh and then but my interviews with monsignor hupp and rusty nelson he started phoning friends and acquaintances in an attempt to nurture my budding inquiry. He spoke to a friend of a friend whose name appeared in the Franklin cover-up, uh, that's DeCamp's book, but the man wouldn't meet with me. Dirk also had a rather unorthodox phone conversation with an acquaintance who had an acquaintance who claimed to have been a drug courier for the ring. The courier wouldn't speak directly to Dirk and used his buddy as a conduit. He apparently recounted a few incidents of murder and mayhem, breaking down in tears, and said I was in great danger. The conversation seemed to blindside Dirk like an unanticipated left hook. I was a little freaked out, too. The sum total of Rusty Nelson's disclosures, if only partly true, uh, people's intense apprehension to talk, daily calls from the NSP investigator. Yeah, someone he had talked to some woman and then like uh, some uh, Nebraska State Police person just kept calling him every day, asking about details of the conversation he had had with her. And the courier's warning were Hmm. whittling away at my cavalier attitude. I also had the feeling I was being followed, but I was unsure if I should chalk it up to a bona fide intuition or an involving uneasiness. Either way, I kept one eye on the rearview mirror. Though I had the willies, I phoned two purported victims who appeared in Conspiracy of Silence. The first victim wouldn't return my calls, but I eventually talked to Paul Bonassi. Yorkshire Television had filmed in Washington, D.C., discussing his life as a child prostitute molested by the power elite. The 33-year-old Bonassi, married and father of two little girls, had an extremely troublesome history. He'd been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder and at the age of 22 served time for the sexual assault of a minor. That's another thing to me, like... You know, I just don't like I just don't truck with the whole idea. Like, you know, if you're sexually abused, like then you become an abuser. Like, I just don't think that's factually true. And I don't like abide these excuses for people who like, you know, I get like, you know, he had an altar or whatever. But ultimately, 
he is his alters. Like, I don't, I just feel like it's, yeah, I, I like, I, I just uh, yeah, don't, I, I don't like, think we need I don't to buy the throw, idea. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyway, we need to but, like bend over backwards. Uh, yeah. Trying like, to so justify. I feel like the, Oh, you know, like, you know, it's not his fault. Like, I don't know. But anyway, so that's another thing to me. But anyway, so Benassi too was averse to being interviewed. So I invited him and his family to lunch, mentioning that we would merely chat. And he says, my offer, uh, you know, it's a brutal, you know, he's giving some uh, details. It's a cold Wednesday. His, uh, you know, his whole family showed up, including his preschool age daughters. Um, so uh, he appeared relatively conventional at first sight. Uh but uh, the indelible black grooves under his troubled brown eyes conveyed a nightmarish past. He and his wife spent 10 minutes peeling off the multiple layers of their children's winter garb. Again, like an unfortunately phrased <laughs> sentence. Yeah. Uh, wiping uh, the girl's runny noses. Uh, as we ate lunch, I noticed two men in their late 50s, burly and casually dressed, periodically peering at our table. They had the menacing look of KGB apparatchiks. This is another thing that he always oh, does. Is like, compa- yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, like, like, we're just like the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, yeah. He there's one part where he's talking with John DeCamp and like about how people won't talk to him and they're afraid. And it's like it's like Stalinist Russia. I oh thought you God. would appreciate that. Yeah, there's but a anyway, few. Yeah. John DeCamp uh, commits a few of those uh, kind I'm of sure things. I'm sure he does. Well. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I struggled not to comment on their undue attention because it was possibly a figment of my increasing wariness, as Benashi's wife was already visibly agitated. After a lunch of spaghetti, smiles, and small talk, Benassi consented to an interview the following afternoon at two o'clock and gave me directions to his house. The next morning, Benassi didn't answer my phone calls, but decided to pay him a visit nonetheless. He and his family lived in Valley, Nebraska, 20 miles west of Omaha. Once I made it to Valley, I navigated a series of twists and turns before taking a left onto a dirt road, which I followed for a block or two before coming to a triple fork. Swerving sharply to the right, I instantly realized that I should have veered left. I abruptly stopped and preparing to back up, glanced in my rearview mirror. A nondescript brown sedan had just turned onto the dirt road and also stopped. I drove on. St- I drove on, stopping just before the main dirt road was out of sight. The brown sedan started and then stopped again. I felt a flight or fight adrenal boost and made a squealing U-turn, waiting for the car to catch up and pass. The car never passed me, and I concluded it must have turned around the dirt road. After collecting myself, I proceeded to the far left fork. The Manassis lived in a rural area that was an odd smattering of trailers, shotgun sacks, shacks, and middle-class houses. The dwellings were spread out on a grid of dirt roads and at the contours of a maze. This is really like creepy pasta, like way too many details. I eventually mm-hmm. found the Benassi's modest single story brown home. No one was there. You know, I pulled into his driveway and hung out for an hour or so, constantly craning to the left and right, but there were no signs of the Benassi family or the brown sedan. Driving back to Omaha, I thought that I had probably been, uh, hadn't been followed after all. The driver of the brown sedan had most likely turned to the dirt road by mistake and uh, realized his mistake precisely when I looked into my rearview mirror. Just as I convinced myself that I'd been beguiled by paranoia, a brown sedan with civilian license plate began tailing me. A tinted windshield obscured the driver's face. I sped up. The brown sedan sped up. I slowed down. The brown sedan slowed down. I hit my brakes and then sped up. The brown sedan backed off briefly and then began tailgating me again. I abruptly swerved onto an exit ramp and slammed to a halt at a stop sign. The brown sedan followed, pulling up behind me. I looked into my rearview mirror, but the tinted windshield continued to obscure the driver. When I took a quick right, the brown sedan streaked past me. I pulled into a gas station, caught my breath, and bought an ice cream sandwich. The ice cream, sa- ice cream sandwiches have a way of alleviating my stress. I ate the ice cream sandwich and mulled over my options. Then I made a beeline back to the Banashis. 
I felt a sufficient amount of fear upon returning to the Benashi to convince myself that I wasn't crazy, because after all, crazy people are generally devoid of fear. I think many might argue that the mere act of returning to the Benashis was crazy, but one of my goals was to interview a reported victim, and I'm big on goals. Prowling down the dirt roll to the Benashis, I repeatedly glancing uh, in my rearview mirror, I noticed Paul Benassi's white van in his driveway. Again, like not like the vehicle color or like, you know, type I would choose if I were Paul Benassi. But anyway, I parked (laughs) on the dirt road, walked over to the house and knocked on the door. Benassi and his wife answered the door. I invited myself into their house and appealed to uh, Benassi for a half hour interview. He begrudgingly consented against his wife's objections. I sat on the couch in their cluttered living room, attempting to allay Mrs. Benassi's marked education as she bundled up their children. Then she hustled them off to her parents' house a few blocks away. Um, so, you know, uh, he talks about how he had a history of psychiatric illness. Um, and, uh, you know, he lobbed a few softballs at him, but just as he started hurling fastballs, his wife opened the front door. She reacted to my last question by demanding that I stop the interview. She feared that their children would be endangered if Benashi talked. Uh, so I guess at least she was kind of afraid uh, for uh, his life, I guess, in a way. But mm-hmm. I just find, okay, another thing that I find odd is that he could have also been indicted for perjury. In fact, I think he was indicted for perjury, but ended, nothing ended up happening to him. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the most visible figures who's been so public about this when everyone else is so afraid. Uh, and I just like, you know, yes, uh, I guess his wife did express some concern about his well-being, but, uh, I don't know. I well, that, am that not is, like, there, there's, yeah. there, there's something the, that maybe feels intuitively off about that where a lot of the people that he wasn't there when he went to his house, he arranged for an interview. Like, you know, there's this weird encounter with the sedan. There's, uh, I don't know. I mean, that yeah, stuff, like, like, there could be a variety of reasons. Is he being followed? Like, I think Tim yeah, Tate, maybe. who is the, the director of the, the Conspiracy of Sounds documentary, mentioned a few times where he felt vaguely like he was being followed or tailed around Omaha, yeah. like, a little bit further. He also recounted finding a different victim. I don't know if it was uh, Loretta Smith or, or another one that he had located through, like, grand jury documents, and he found her in a kind of more uh, a rougher part of Omaha in, like, this apartment complex and um he like knocked on her door and she had like a couple small kids and she seemed like really freaked out that this like british guy had shown up to talk to her and Mm -hmm. they said you know uh, we'd like to interview you we're doing this thing and like you know uh you know tried tried their best to like not to like calm her down and she was like okay okay but like i have my kids to take care of right now so like come back in the morning and i'll interview you i'll let you interview me and so they're like okay so they come back the next morning and Tim Tate said that the entire apartment had been cleaned out and it was everything was gone. Interesting. And like they had moved. Wow. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like overnight they like cleared out everything they had and just hightailed it out of, I don't know, at least there, maybe out of Omaha. But that was how afraid some of these other uh, victims were to actually talk about it. Yeah. So it does, It d- when people are that scared, and then also somebody like Alicia Owen and Troy Boner, like these, the other kind of people didn't all allege, like Paul Benassi probably has the most extreme allegations of all of these people, yeah. right? And yet he has spoken out the most and seems to have suffered the least. Um, I don't think we, we mentioned yet, but like Troy Bonner, died under vague and kind of exactly. suspicious yeah. circumstances, uh, maybe in yeah. 
the early 2000s. He ran into a hospital. And a, a lot hospital. of family members did as well. Like his, yeah, uh, oh, his brother. His, his, yeah, his brother his, died. Yeah, Sean. Supposedly playing uh, Russian roulette, but they believed, yeah. the entire family believed that the brother was murdered and it was right. staged to look like a suicide to intimidate them. Uh, Alicia right. Owen's brother also died during yeah. the, the kind of whole ordeal and they also mm-hmm. believed that that was maybe an attempt to intimidate. So like a lot of people ended up dead. So it does, yeah. it, it does make you wonder a little bit like why uh, Paul Benassi has been sort of spared though. I could understand his wife's legitimate concern that maybe he got away from this stuff. And as long as he doesn't go out in public talking about it again, perhaps he'll be left alone. But if he did go out talking, then, you know, the, the, he may be, he perhaps had been threatened, you know, we're going to come after your family. Um, they killed Carrie Caridori's son, you know, like they, they clearly don't care about, um, doing this. So, uh, but it does, it does make you wonder a little bit. And then maybe, I mean, because like Troy Boner, as far as I know, Alicia Owen and Troy Boner did not have multiple personalities disorder or DID or claim to be part of a government program. They were part of a much more of like an Epstein style, like sex ring, uh, uh, catering to elites. And mm-hmm. stuff like that, and were used as drug couriers and things like that, and uh, and so yeah, I mean it, it does put Benassi kind of in the separate category where, I mean, in a way closer to kind of a Kathy O'Brien, which uh, she almost and I guess now we can we can correct that that I think if in fact Benassi was telling John DeCamp about like being part of the Monarch program that maybe it was Paul Benassi who was the first person to use this term um, because yeah, Kathy O'Brien's book came out in 95. And, yeah, uh, if, uh, yeah, if he had told him that, yeah. And um, same with Fritz Springmeier in the mid-90s, though I feel like Fritz Springmeier right. and John DeCamp were like in touch, like they talked and were kind of part of the whole uh, network. Um, and and even, I mean, that gets to the last point where I there's a few times near the end of uh, <clears throat> the Franklin cover-up book where DeCamp talks about um, the LaRouche people getting involved with this because mm-hmm. in some sense it's completely up their alley in terms of what their um, sort of uh, political cosmology of the world is that yeah. I mean that he was going on TV in the 80s and accusing Henry Kissinger of being a pedophile Lyndon right. LaRouche was and um, I guess they sent um, there's a very eclectic group of um of like activists that went there in the early nineties that was kind of organized by, um, the Schiller Institute, which is like a Linda, right. Linda LaRouche run by Hel- Helga yeah, Zepp yeah. LaRouche. Yeah. And, um, and they basically, they, they, they launched a citizens fact finding commission to investigate human rights violations in Nebraska and they went out um, to Omaha with the Reverend James Bevel, who's an associate of Martin Luther King, um, an Austrian leader of the European Citizens Initiative to Protect Life and Human Dignity. I have no idea what that is. This one really threw me. And the president of the Ukrainian Political Action Committee of the United States and a clinical uh-huh. psychologist from Canada. OK, so I was like, wait, hold up. What the hell is the Ukrainian political? And then, of course, you know what I think of immediately when I hear like oh, a political organization of Ukrainians like in the United States. And I looked it up and yes, indeed, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America is like the main lobbying group. And the constituents of that group um, include the Brotherhood of Veterans of the First Division of the Ukrainian National Army, who were also known as um, a member of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS Galizian. 
<laughs> so okay. basically Nazis, Nazi, Ukrainian Nazis, um, and like all kinds of like OUNB uh, type people. So I don't know like what their stake in this game. I thought they were all quite close with George Bush. So maybe that's why they were there um, to make sure. I don't know. It's just very, the Bushes hated Lennon LaRouche as well, but Lennon LaRouche is so suspicious. I just find it like, uh, like yeah. this, this is where clearly it kind of goes off the rails in terms of like the story is not going to be accepted in the mainstream because yeah. now the LaRouchers are all over it. And yes. even though I think I the LaRouche yeah. hits, he hits some targets sometimes like the executive intelligence yeah. review, uh, you know, they were, they were uh, kind of, issuing, you know, fiery articles about like Iran Contra drug trafficking in like 1982 before anybody else was, but it they're kind of classic in that the, I think maybe they were kind of the most sophisticated maybe sort of like conspiracy management op maybe that was out there because they really had a sophisticated I mean they had people that were kind of like well educated like Webster Tarpley and stuff and but they had this kind of eclectic wacky um, kind of like little Strasserite kind of a occasion, mm-hmm. sometimes kind of worldview, but even though LaRouche was a, uh, a Trotskyite back in the day. Anyways, I found that, yeah. you know, that... You know, and there's a ver- the Verdi pitch, you know? He has oh, the Verdi pitch. Of, <laughs> there's all kind kinds of, of things. Point. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, and uh, yeah. it's just, it's an interesting uh, coalition. And then to have uh, William Colby running around kind of giving more air to this, while Simon Taylor, and you know, it, it's worth noting that like he's in the conspiracy of silence documentary, which I think in a way like kind of speaks volumes. Like imagine, I don't know, John Brennan or though he, he goes on stupid things all the time, but you, you know what I mean? Like a kind of former CIA director coming out and being like, yep, there's like a elite pedophile ring run by the CIA and like, it's pretty bad. And, uh, I'm just going to talk yeah. about it in this documentary. It, it, it it's um it's also weird that in the judgment uh it's weird in the judgment against Paul Bonassi or sorry for Paul Bonassi the default judgment awarding him one million dollars uh from Larry King which you know has never been collected <laughs> yeah said civil that he suit passed up like a uh, military career which is weird if he had been like from his very early youth like subject to this like you know uh like a government mind. Wait, you said program. he passed like, up a military career. That's what it says in the uh, in the judgment. Oh, by, that's uh, that's the but, his claim yeah. for damages is that it ruined uh, his military his, career. That's that's one of the reasons why. Of course, you know also, and I do think you know to be clear, like I'm sure that he like suffered like horribly. You know, like uh, I don't like uh, disbelieve like uh, his claims, uh, but I you know. His involvement to me and like his subsequent career, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe it, perhaps yeah, it's less know. of a question of, you know, uh, what, what are his motivations and more the absence of severe crackdown on him as opposed to cracking down on other people, because in a way, okay, let's just, if we postulate that this thing yeah, that was called monarch actually existed. And yeah. yeah, maybe it it makes sense that maybe every now and then to have a whistleblower get out there when there is kind of a scandal that is a uh, thre- threatening to cross over into the mainstream in any way, you have somebody come out with 
with uh, narratives, with testimony that sounds so far out that you know it's going to knock it back into the category of conspiracy theory. And so would you want to punish that person and then lend credence to the fact that they were telling the truth? Or would you just kind of trust that the media is going to be able to spin that and marginalize it? And it's just, also just, yeah, it's just, uh, it's surprising. And, you know, maybe this is like, you could see this as a great triumph, but the fact that he, you know, and I mean, yeah, like uh, maybe he successfully was able to integrate his different personalities. Uh, and he even says, you know, like some of his past, like he questions himself, like some, even some of his past statements uh, prior to his integration Sure. Such as those that he made when he went on America's Most Wanted and things like that. Yeah, but, which he yeah, did. It's, he it's, did identify certain things, like the the house in Colorado where he, you know, allegedly took Johnny Gosh and met the quote Colonel. Um, I forget yeah. if he said in that that it was Michael Aquino, but uh, right, he was yeah. able to Although, accurately describe like the features of this ranch house and like be able yes. to lead, uh, you know, John Walsh to it. So well, there were, yeah, there were contradictions, of course, in what he said to J- Gary Caridori, but there were also like, you know, compelling details. Um, yeah, and he I was able that, to describe you know, in great detail the 1984 party that we mentioned earlier in Dallas yeah. uh, what that Larry King threw that John DeCamp was at. And he said that, like, you know, basically um, Benassi was able to describe that party and its opulence and the detail and the things that were there in, in such great detail. And John DeCamp knew because he had also been there that, you know, why would this like 13 at the time, like 13 year old kid, like have any idea about what Larry King's party at the 1984, like Dallas convention, you know, was like in such, you know, describing where he was and, and all that stuff. So I think like he, there's a lot with his stuff that, that like checks out in general. I think even the Johnny gosh stuff, like, Mm, I don't know. Like the Johnny Gosh kidnapping is super sus. I don't know if I buy the kind of idea that like, uh, you know, uh, that he came back and visited Noreen Gosh or that he was like Jeff Gannon, that mysterious um, like gay escort who got a White House press clearance under W. Mm-hmm. You remember that whole thing? And then people thought that was like Johnny right. Gosh and he, he was like an MK journalist now. I mean, um, maybe that's not necessarily. And, you know, you always have to ask, like, instead of that being false, meaning that we should, like, knock the dominoes down and discredit all of this, like, maybe that one false thing is uh, they, they you know, want it to be there. And, yeah, and basically... Exactly. Like, the it, contradictions, the flaws, you know, uh-huh. like... Uh, Just a so, little bit of yeah. confusion and ambiguity I mean, can I go a long way. Like, you know, uh, he suffered, although uh, he, like, possibly has caused, like, the suffering of others, but... Uh, oh, I mean, he definitely, like, I mean, he, he, yeah, he know, talked about her spinning they were going, yeah, Well, especially since they were going, like, you know, uh, out of their way to smear everyone involved as, like, you know, oh, she's a felon because she passed a bad check, to then have, like, someone come forward who himself was, like, a child molester of, like, two boys, like, and then uh, attach himself to it. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to read this, uh, one thing uh, from uh, after uh, his encounter with uh, Paul Benassi, which, uh, you know, is uh, interesting. Again, like not something that necessarily uh, implicates him, but uh, is a spooky little encounter. So uh, Bryant uh, writes uh, that he left the Benassi's uh, stressed and exhausted. As I entered Dirk's apartment, he gave me a concerned look. Dirk, by the way, is his friend who he's staying with in Omaha, I guess. Mm-hmm. I told him about the nondescript brown sedan and the Benassi interview and a red alert registered in his eyes. 
I eventually rolled into bed, tossing and turning for an hour or two before falling asleep. The following morning, Friday, I drove to the camp's office and finished sifting through his documentation, thanking Jan for all her help. I made it back to Dirk's by early evening, but and he wasn't home. I'd been sitting on the couch channel surfing for about five minutes when I heard a knock on the front door. I cautiously crossed the living room and peered through the peephole, focusing on the convex image of a woman in her late 20s or early 30s. She had a mane of unkempt, long red hair, a full freckled face, and wore thick lens glasses. I asked if I could help her, and she held up a book and said she wanted to give it to me. Her speech and mannerisms had the somnolence of someone in a hypnotic trance. After the brown sedan incident, there was no way in hell I was opening the door. I wasn't sure if she was alone. I didn't want her potentially incriminating fingerprints in Dirk's apartment or her prints or my prints on her book. I wish I'd had the presence of mind to grab my tape recorder, but I was too tired and freaked out to think straight. Though I repeatedly asked her to leave, she wouldn't, insisting that I take the book. I eventually walked back to the couch and resumed channel surfing, uh, and she finally left. Within minutes of her departure, Dirk came home, carrying a sack of groceries. I mentioned that we'd had a visitor bearing a gift. Dirk said that he'd passed her on his way into the building. Taken aback by her freaky appearance, he couldn't help himself from turning to watch her walk into the night. He would remark that he'd never seen her before. As Dirk toiled away in the kitchen making dinner, and I settled on the History Channel, I again heard a knock on the front door. She was back, bearing the same gift. I motioned Dirk over to the door, and he gave to the peephole. The events of the preceding 24 hours had depleted my adrenal reserves, but her reappearance gave Dirk a major adrenaline jolt. His facial expression cycled through dread, foreboding, and bewilderment, and she relentlessly knocked on the door. Dirk and I huddled five feet from the door, discussing possible responses while she continued to knock. We agreed that under no circumstances should she enter the apartment, because there were just too many unknown factors. Stunned and perplexed, Dirk walked back into the kitchen as I implored her to leave. Before she left, she said, You're in danger. They're going to kill you. Wow. Yeah. That is creepy. Something. Yeah, very so, creepy story. It has shaken my faith in institutions of government. I used to be a firm believer that that uh, system would work. And uh, that people who did things wrong would be punished. And uh, we discovered uh, victims who claimed to have been abused and who the grand jury acknowledged had been abused. But they did not try to find out who had abused those individuals. Instead, um, they convicted Alicia Holt of perjury. Indefensible from my point. You know, there absolutely has to be a there there, I think, for literally everybody who's ever uh, tried to make a story about this um, basically gets, like, gang-stalked or harassed or threatened. It's yeah, just, there's way too weird. many mysterious deaths involved. Uh, yeah. Something that Bryant uh, brought up later in the book, like, you know, while discussing some of the mind control stuff was... Uh, uh, Operation Midnight Climax. Oh yeah, yeah, I know, uh, but that was part of MK Ultra. Yeah, it was part of MK Ultra. Yeah, um, which was basically like, yeah, I think it's a, uh, uh, and you know, it's very relevant. I think to to this type of thing. Basically, uh, for those who don't know, it was pretty much like a yeah, an MK Ultra program where it was done in San Francisco, up. actually, not yeah, far exactly. from where Aquino grew up. 
Yeah, they would set up, like, brothels in San Francisco um, and, I guess, lure people there. Um, And apparently they had, like, it's kind of similar to, like, what, you know, is described. And, you know, I got to say, like, a little bit of, like, the whole, like, Pizzagate situation where uh, they had, like, uh, art on the walls that was, like, uh, you know... Uh, tortured women in bondage and provocative posters from uh, Henri uh, de Toulouse-Lautrec, you know. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's actually a um, uh, an article in SF Weekly that talks about it. Yeah, it says uh, there were at least uh, three CIA safe houses in the Bay Area where experiments went on. Uh, chief among them was uh, 225 Chestnut on Telegraph Hill, which operated from 1955 to 1965. Mm-hmm. The L-shaped apartment boasts sweeping waterfront views, uh, and which is a short trip up the hill from North Beach's rowdy saloons. Yep. Inside, prostitutes paid by the government to lure clients to the apartment served up acid-laced cocktails on suspecting Johns, while martini-swilling secret agents observed their every move from behind a two-way mirror. Yeah. Recorded devices were installed, some disguised as electrical outlets. To get the guys in the mood, yeah, the walls were adorned with all these, like, photographs, you know, very reminiscent of, like, Tony Podesta art or something, uh-huh. or, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the satanic art well, that was described yeah, in some of these places, yeah. Some abstract expressionism, maybe. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, the agents grew fascinated with the kicky sex games that played out between the Johns and the Hookers. The two-way mirror in the bedroom gave the agents a close-up view of all the action. Mm. Um, so this was like ha- they were studying like the effects of LSD and, and other drugs. Yeah, they were. Uh, they went know, through it's, all it's kinds very, of different things. And, yeah, um, to you know, to, like uh, in this sort of context of like prostitution. Yeah, so it's interesting when you like map that onto well, some of the descriptions of this. It, it actually is uh, because uh, when uh, when we tackle um, at another date the uh, Confessions of a DC Madam, one of the uh, one of the stories that Henry Vincent and Nick Bryant relay in that is. Uh, Henry Vincent went over to like an apartment that was managed by Larry King and Craig Spence. And I think Craig Spence took him, there was a, there was like a mirror on the wall and he took him into this like locked door, you know, behind the room. And basically there was recording equipment and like a two way mirror. And Mm -hmm. uh, the, the apartment was like completely bugged and that's where they would throw these like sex parties. And, uh, and compromise people basically. So I think it, and it sounded like, you know, they, they almost got it down to a science by the 1980s of building these like midnight climax apartments that are completely bugged. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've been studying how to do this for decades. Um, yeah. And it's very interesting in light of like, yeah, like some of the descriptions of the kind of parties that would be involved in the sort of Franklin pedophile ring and like the insistence of, uh, Michael Mott about like, uh, Alicia Owens, like acid dealing through like the Crips and the Bloods and the Sons of Silence and things like that. Like, uh, it's yeah. Uh, There's a lot. That's a very strange thing because you don't usually think about Crips and Bloods um, dealing acid. Maybe no, certain biker gangs uh, would. Yeah. Um, at various times, like we're kind of into the whole. Ad- I mean, actually, in the '60s, they were with like Hunter S. Thompson and the Hell's Angels. Right. They would take acid yeah. for fun. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, and then I think you know the last thing. Maybe we should start to wrap up because we're almost at like three and a half hours. Um, all right, all right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. the last thing I just want to mention uh, is to briefly read um, the uh, the self described bio of John DeCamp in this book, which touches on a few uh, uh, kind of like Paul Benassi, just a few interesting things about his biography. 
and um, and maybe some questions related. So it says that DeCamp was born in Nebraska, but his unusual experiences early in life helped make him a man of uncommon independence and determination. On his own from the age of 13, DeCamp traveled, lived, and worked in Europe and Iran, spoke six languages, and graduated with a Doctor of Law degree and became an attorney in 1967 in the Nebraska Bar when he was called to duty and ended up in Vietnam. DeCamp was a captain in the Vietnam War and worked directly for Ambassador William Colby to help establish the Phoenix Program, uh, a program which DeCamp today condemns. In 1975, as Saigon was falling, DeCamp excused himself from the Nebraska Senate, went to Vietnam in the final days before Vietnam collapsed, and initiated and organized the world-famous Operation Baby Lift. This program evacuated 2,800 Vietnamese and American children orphaned in the war. These children were brought to the USA, where all were adopted or reunited with people from their own families. For this act, DeCamp was honored at the White House by the President of the United States, recognized by the U.S. Senate. And... Yeah, so I mean, I actually didn't. I don't want to get too, you know, speculative about like Operation Baby Lift because I think there's definitely a certain way you could look at that and be like, that's incredibly sus. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like the little I've heard about Operation Baby Lift, I'm like vaguely aware of it, but it does sound like something that would be ripe for kidnapping a bunch of children and like taking them off uh, to America. Yes. Um. Mm-hmm. And maybe there could be a lot of like kind of it's got very Laura Silsby uh, like Haitian children vibes to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I don't know, DeCamp was so adamant about he he does seem genuinely driven to like stick his neck out and expose this thing. I mean, he basically threw his whole reputation on it and kind of in some ways like it did sully his reputation, but he's also somebody who didn't, he did have some kind of threats thrown his way, but you know, nothing ever serious. Uh, no family members of his, as far as I know, were killed. I mean, the closest thing was his friend, Bill Colby, who, um, he, you know, and he does say later that like, I don't know the fact of the Phoenix program too. It's like, like I would love DeCamp passed away. I think, uh, maybe two years ago. Um, and I think he had been suffering from Alzheimer's. So maybe I don't know, it, it kind of he wasn't really available to talk about this case anymore. Like the last like 10 years of his life. Um, otherwise, maybe he still would have. But the fact that he was in this program and then Michael Aquino was in this program and like they both were probably doing pretty awful, horrible things. And then years later, it comes back around where, you know, he's the state senator trying to expose a pedo ring and then. He meets this kid who says Michael Aquino is like doing Phoenix program stuff on kids at off at Air Force Base. It's just all kind of like is is the world that small? It's it's highly yeah. bizarre uh, kind of mm-hmm. construction of coincidences and uh, and that this guy would be kind of become a crusader against the very things that seem like an outgrowth of the thing that he was involved in. Though I don't think he ever fully makes. I, I don't think he ever fully goes there in the sense of like, we brought the Phoenix program back to, to the U S but he does kind of mention all the bad things the Phoenix program did and kind of nominally says that it was a, it was bad, but he also says like, you know, but the North Vietnamese themselves say that it was the most effective program the U S had in Vietnam. I don't know if that's, uh, maybe that's true. Um, 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, it reminds me of like, you know, Hitler was a very effective leader or something, you know, like a little uh, right? bit. Yeah. Like, like if you if if you have no yeah, standard for like your no effect, limits to your yeah, brutality, you I guess. To be effective, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. People say stuff like that all the time. And it's just like, all right. Yeah. Like by the standard of evil, like, uh, yeah. Then, yeah and and it does. Uh, it honestly, it does bother me that um, that like Bill Colby's stance, as curious and interesting as it is that he was willing to like stand up to like George Bush or whatever and like maybe got killed for it. He still has, he's still Bill Colby. He still has this like kind of low key psychotic cold war outlook and believes in the righteousness of, um, of the United States. Like it's hard not to cringe in the forward to the book where John DeCamp talks about visiting with Bill Colby in 1991 and Bill Colby is telling him like, you need to drop this or else like you're going to get killed. There are things that are like too big, John, that you just can't. And then he, as he relays an anecdote to kind of um, calm John DeCamp down a little bit, he says basically, uh, Relax, and I will tell you my own personal story. Maybe it will have some message for you. Last night, I returned from Russia, uh, Bill began. Our conversation was taking place shortly before the now infamous August 19th, 1991 coup attempt to throw out Gorbachev and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union as it has existed since 1917. Why was I in Russia, Bill explained, for meetings in Moscow to try to work with other world leaders and Russian leaders privately and quietly so that when and if a transition of power and a change of government and economic policy occur in Russia, they occur in such a way that it avoids a war. I was staying at a hotel located right near Red Square, which, as you know, is the most guarded, sacred spot in the Soviet Union. It was about one in the morning. I could not sleep. The next morning, I was to return to the United States. Not being able to sleep, I thought I would see if it's possible to walk around and get some exercise. I walked out of my room, expecting to be stopped by the guards or secret police, but nobody paid attention to me in the hallway. I walked on down into the hotel lobby. Nobody seemed to care. So I walked out of the door of the hotel, directly onto Red Square. Nobody paid attention. I stopped by Lenin's tomb. I stood a few feet away from the entrance to the Kremlin. Then it struck me like a ton of bricks. It was over. (laughs) Here was the head of the CIA, once hated and feared by the Soviet Union, wandering unwatched and unguarded around Red Square after spending the previous week meeting with their leaders, trying to help them save themselves from economic collapse and political revolution, which might turn into a new totalitarian dictatorship. And nobody cared. The guards did not care who I was or what I was doing. The system had collapsed. It was over. Communism was dead. That was the happy part. Bill went on quietly, but I also realized that this walk in Red Square was going to be the only victory parade I would have to celebrate my 40-year battle for this. There were not going to be any parades down Madison Avenue with ticker tape. This walk in Red Square was the only victory parade I was going to have. So what's the message, I asked. What are you trying to tell me? Sometimes, Bill said, there are forces too powerful for us to whip them individually in the time frame that we would like. We have to keep working at our goal, but we have to be sensible enough not to risk everything and get ourselves destroyed or killed in the process. That victory we seek may take much longer than we wanted and come in ways we never anticipated. Maybe, just maybe, you have to have your own private victory parade. You may have to face with the fact that you cannot right all the unrightable wrongs, that there really are people too powerful. Interests uh, and that the rich and the powerful, even when doing uh, sorry, the blocked out, but uh, that the rich and powerful, even when doing evil, can and will succeed, and you can do nothing about it at that moment. But, Bill continued, 
you can do the possible, recognize the impossible, and if you are right, and you are, and we both know it, there will be a time when victory will come and the good will triumph over the evil. Only the when and the where and how are usually unknown to us. The best we might be able to do sometimes is point out the truth and then step aside. That is where I think you are now. For your own safety and survival, step aside. And yeah, so that's like, uh, I have to say, kind of resent the conflation of John DeCamp taking down a satanic pedophile network with Bill Coley's 40-year subliminal jihad to destroy communism Mm -hmm. and the Soviet Union. Um, mm, A little, I don't know, ironic, unfortunate. um, And I mean, regardless of, okay, yeah, he can have his private victory parade and everything, but that Uh, still, it's like, dude, do you not realize that, uh, you know, George... H.W. Bush is doing Project Hammer right now. I mean, I'm kind of being facetious, but kind of not. Like, dude, do you not realize what, like, do you not see the continuity between what you labored for for the last 40 years and this, like, insane pedophile network operating in Omaha and D.C. that is literally connected to, you know, the... Iran-Contra, the death squads, like spreading the Phoenix thing that you created uh, all around the world, um, abusing children, you know, trafficking drugs, um, all kinds of stuff, yeah, you know? I guess, it's like, uh, how did Bill not, uh, I guess he just had his blinders yeah, on. All those things kind of helped the, uh, you know, uh, achieve the result that he was so happy with, uh, you know, but... Um, yeah, if, guess, he you know, a, if he wanted to find a, if he wanted to find a, yeah, you shouldn't really be able to enjoy the victory if like you take issue with the means by which it was achieved. Right. I that's feel, a good point. Know. That's a good point. I mean, if he um, wanted to find a silent victory parade, maybe he because, should like, you know, he betrayed, they we betrayed, you know, the glorious values of, you know, uh, whatever. Um, like, well, I guess, you know, goodness in general, like how could you, like if it, you know, how how could you be happy that your side won if it had to compromise like everything? Yeah. Like you know, good be, beyond like ideal on an ideological level. I guess maybe it is still in some respect ideological, but yeah, I mean, uh, he was a devout you know, Catholic, like, so in that pretty, sense, yeah, like uh, it's yeah, uh, it, certainly like it was a win uh, for beyond him, the but... level of debate and litigation between like communism and capitalism or whatever, or uh, America and, and the Soviet Union, like. Uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, things happened that were just, uh, you know, uh, flat out evil. So, uh, yeah. The kind of the most, uh, um, yeah, the, the absolute most charitable thing I could possibly say is that after the Cold War was won and he, um, even though it sounds like maybe he was instrumental in destroying the Soviet Union by going over there and holding meetings with people, you know, that he was he was maybe playing chess when he was there you know, meeting with these leaders to like stop a new, he said to stop a new totalitarian dictatorship. But of course, like the, it was the, the Soviet hardliners, so to speak, uh, the, the more conservative Soviets that, uh, you know, leaders that launched that coup in August 91 to stop the uh, implementation of capitalist reforms because they felt that this was like, this was gutting the state to a point where there's going to be a, a complete restoration of capitalism. And that Gorbachev was just like diddling around and like not stopping it. And so they tried to like launch this last minute coup, uh, which did not uh, succeed. They probably should have arrested Boris Yeltsin right away. Um, but they didn't. They failed. And, you know, I guess uh, Bill Colby was like right there in the mix, like trying to prevent, make sure that Yeltsin came out on top 
and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also, who knows? Maybe he thought, you know, you needed a deft hand to do this without sparking like a crazy war. You know, destroying the Soviet Union is no small task. To do it without having your fingerprints on it and a way where it just implodes on itself. And, you know, it just seems like it's just a victory for America. But maybe if I'm being ultra charitable, he realized after all that um, that maybe, you know, what was this great victory? He comes back to America and there are satanic pedophile rings running around. Yeah. But he also says, though, I have to say, like, again, Mark against him, that one of the last things he told uh, John DeCamp before he died was that, like, we absolutely had to reelect Bill Clinton because he's a great president. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, okay, so you weren't aware of, like, the Mina cocaine thing, Bill Colby, or his Mm. connections to the Bushes and, like, the, the CIA in the 80s. I mean, obviously, I think Bill Colby, I think he's he's playing with John DeCamp a little bit. He's got the, he almost has a kind of vibe, a little bit of like uh, Tom DeLonge and John Podesta where he's mm-hmm. like, or, you know, any general and, and Tom DeLonge yeah. of like, I know things that like, I am never going mm-hmm. to tell you and right. I am playing with you a little bit, but like, I know how to keep you, you know, he just sits at like Bill Colby's feet, like lapping up like his wisdom, you know, and just has so much respect for Bill Colby. Um, despite acknowledging that the Phoenix program was like really evil. It's mm-hmm. you know, he, he, I think he sees him as like a flawed, but like essentially good kind of guy. And, um, but just the whole milieu, like, yeah. Uh, Bill Colby, I think he probably, he might've been murdered. I don't know if it had anything to do with this necessarily, but <laughs> he might've been killed for something he was doing that pissed people off. Um, I have no idea, but, uh, yeah. Good job, director Colby. You, uh, you won, you won. The victory parade is in the twin towers penthouse suite. Um, that's where the victory party is for your side. Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's all, yeah. Uh, it's all headed there. That's the destination. Um, word. In so many ways, but yeah, I think we can we can wrap it up there for now. Um, there's going to be other uh, dimensions of like this case or like things tangentially connected to it that um, we're going to address in later episodes. But uh, for now, I hope yeah. um, it's a pretty dark topic. Um, yes, pretty. Uh, there are some really grim uh, uh, little uh, anecdotes in, in this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I uh, would highly recommend watching the like the the pirated version of um, Conspiracy of Silence, and um, as a good jumping off point and. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Tell people more about this. I think more people need to know. If people are talking about Epstein, yeah. tell them about Larry King and the 80s. It's also a great thing for when Republicans start going off about how, like, you know, the Clintons and the Democrats are and, like, they're all, you know, Epstein pedos and blah, blah, blah. And, like, Republicans are uh, not pedos. Like, this is a really good counter Q kind of thing. Not that anyone's going to believe in Q anymore after this, but you know, um, or the idea that, you know, Donald Trump or like the Republicans have a better track record for, uh, uh, or conservatives in general have a better track record of, you know, hunting down pedos in government. It's these liberal sickos that, uh, tolerate it. It turns out like that is, it it is definitely a bipartisan consensus, uh, to, uh, protect, um, pedophile rings for, um, yeah, what we can assume are highly nefarious purposes. So, 
it's uh, but it's it, it's a good. I think it's a, a tremendously important story in the in the contra chain of horrors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's pretty endless chain, but, uh, it's definitely, yeah, uh, a compelling link. Um, yeah. And who knows, you know, there's definitely a lot of terrain for the future. I think definitely we should do the finders. We might want to go down the yeah. Johnny gosh, like rabbit hole and explore like, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, I, I think so. Cause here. it's very, it, that's a very, li- that's a more liminal case because like we've never found Johnny gosh and he just vanished. Yeah, and, and then, true. you know, we've talked before about like Kevin Collins in San Francisco and all yeah. the milk carton kids and, uh, even Eugene Martin in Des Moines, who doesn't get talked about as much. Um, that, you know, Des Moines is not very far from Omaha and, uh, it seemed like these, state there's a lot of there was a spike in this stuff in the 80s and it's bizarre the like mm-hmm. you know just random kidnapping you know off the street um it's going missing so i think we will yeah and we'll get to the henry yeah, vincent and that was where yeah banasi like kind of you know very uh explicitly kind of involved aquino mm-hmm. uh you know he said that it was like kind of I mean, I guess Aquino was sort of the ringleader of, of a lot of uh, the stuff that he alleged he was made to do. But Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, it is fascinating you know, that Aquino pops up in all of these things. He pops up in Kathy O'Brien's book. I want to say yeah. I'd have to check Bryce Taylor's, but I think probably he pops up in that, too. And of course, you know, we could say he's just such an easy target. If you're going to make up a, a, a mind control, satanic abuse narrative with the military, like, of course, Aquino, how could Aquino not be in that? But they all have kind of like different uh, anecdotes about kind of, you know, how they met him and stuff. It, it, so it, I don't know. I, I think it's really fascinating and, uh, and we will, um, we will hit these, uh, you know, these additional things that form a pretty like chilling, but convincing tapestry. Um, and next week, even our next episode in the Alwara frequency, if you want to check that out, is going to, uh, interlock with this story um, oh yeah, you almost. I mean, I'm maybe we maybe it's contra four. Mm, if this is contra way. three, maybe that is contra four. But I mean, uh, this is more about the artist Mark Lombardi and his conceptual artworks, which traced a lot of the um, financial shenanigans that were under the hood of the Iran Contra enterprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, another person like like martyr Gary Caridori who. Yeah, that will definitely died. be an interesting counterpart because it's sort of like methodological in a way and it shows like sort of how uh, these like webs of connections uh, work in, in, a, in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting Absolutely. kind of, uh, yeah, artistic exploration of uh, how these uh, things are, are uh, framed out. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. Uh, so uh, yeah, subscribe to be... Alwara if you haven't yet. Uh, yes, and indeed. If you have, and... Look forward to that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, yeah, that's uh, I think that that's it for now. And uh, by the by the way, Larry King uh, works lives in Reston, Virginia, as far as I know, and worked at a BMW dealership uh, as of like ten years ago. Um, he's still out there, but um, fuck Larry King. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, I hate. He's like yeah. Mark Collins' rector. He's in the pantheon of fucking nightmare 
Uh, yeah, but don't uh, uh, track him down and harass him because you might get gang stalked or like assassinated by like a hypnotized smiley face killer. So, I guess for legal reasons, do uh, not do not uh, gain do not stalk um, Larry King or run into any BMW. Well, yeah, or if not for legal reasons, for you know, uh, also like for your own safety, maybe like uh, you know, maybe like because you might yourself become gang stalked by. Anyway, like, you know, a bunch yeah. of smiley face killers. You might find yourself drowned in a shallow pool of water. Yeah, so <laughs> that's that. Yeah. And well, uh, but uh, yeah, he's certainly sung his swan song. Uh, he'll never, uh, you know, serenade us from uh, the Republican National Convention again. Although I, I, I bet he was. Uh, I bet he was. I bet he voted for Trump. Wouldn't shock uh, me. It wouldn't shock yeah. me unless he was loyal to HW till the end. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I guess know, that's protested. true. Yeah, maybe he followed. He probably yeah. was a Jeb voter in the primaries, I would imagine, in 2016. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Um, maybe he voted for Kanye. Uh, cause, I don't know. think so. I don't think so. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyways, uh, uh, until next time, dear listeners, um, like, definitely stay vigilant. Yes. Uh,